Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today we're going to Scotland to talk to Will Copestake about a trip he named Macare to Monroe. Solo at 23 years old, Will spent a year traveling around Scotland by kayak and bike. It's a cool trip that combines two of his passions, paddling and climbing, into one amazing adventure. So I won't ruin the surprise. Here we go. Enjoy today's interview with Will Copestake. Hello, Will. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. So, Will, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal paddling background? Uh, personal paddling, I'm mostly an expedition sea kayaker. Uh, I started off in whitewater and then pretty quickly moved into sea kayaking uh, and specialised in going on long, fairly remote, self-propelled trips. Uh, I really like trying to get to places under my own steam, so packing my own food in uh, and just exploring the slightly ruggeder uh, areas of the world, generally where the weather makes you cold, wet and miserable. <laughs> so you, um, I, I first... I came across you on the uh, on a web broadcast through the PH Kayaks Owners Group, and uh, you were talking a little bit about your start in Patagonia. Yeah, so for me, I, I first went to Patagonia at the, the winter of 2014 following a long expedition in Scotland, uh, and I jumped in a little bit with two feet into guiding down there, uh, relying on expedition skills and personal paddling strength but not really having anything to back it up at the time. Uh, I think I held like a BCU two star, but I did have mountain guiding qualifications. So I was happy with guiding and I was happy with kayaking and it was mashing the two together in a really interesting environment uh, where I first learned to guide. So now you say you you didn't have uh, a lot to back it up, but you certainly had a lot to back it up from the standpoint of actual expedition paddling, and that's where the Scotland trip comes in. So tell us about your multi-mode trip uh, around Scotland. You know, most of the trips that we share in this show are paddling specific, but yours is a little different. So let's hear about it. So this was a creation uh, after leaving university to try and absolutely embed myself in my home country and its culture and landscape. Uh, I called the trip Macair to Munro. Macair is a really famous um, environment that you get on the coasts of Scotland, and the Munros and mountains are greater than 3,000 feet. The idea was to try and kayak the, the coast of Scotland along the mainland coast, and then get on a bike and cycle home via the 282 Munro summits, mostly through the winter. What is it about that trip that got you fired up? Um, for me, it was my first big kayak expedition, uh, first solo expedition that I'd done in a kayak as well. And it, it was, I'd always, I, I've grown up on the water, at the bottom of my garden is the sea. Exploring the coast and kayaking has always really fascinated me. But what I, what I found was that I really knew my home ground and I knew a couple of areas close to where I'd gone to university, but the rest of Scotland was really a kind of mystery zone for me. And so paddling round, it was a really awesome way to to get to know some stunning stretches of coastline uh, and take me to some places that I would really never go otherwise and probably wouldn't have done um, had I not been doing that continual expedition style. So tell us about some of the uh, unique things that you saw along the way and experienced along the way. I 
think some of my favorite would be definitely some of the wildlife. You, you quite regularly see dolphins, you'd see whales, uh, you'd stumble across otters along the coast and the bird life uh, nesting on the crags. Uh, there was always fun in trying to get into caves and arches uh, whenever you could get there with the conditions. Uh, and for me, it was always about finding the, the surprise excitement. So you, you knew on the West Coast that you'd have this amazing paddling. It's, it's world famous for kayaking. But then when you get around the North Coast and the Northeast, which is often forgotten about, it really surprised me to find some truly amazing paddling, uh, huge cliffs, great commitment, lots of seabirds, lots of arches, just a really uh, interesting and enthralling space to go and explore. Now, how many, uh, what, what kind of distance did you do in the water and how many days were you out? Um, so in total on the kayaking side of things, I was about four months, of which there was about a month spent in a tent ashore. Um, I was incredibly timid uh, when I started out before my four-month trip around the country, I, I was relying on the skills as a whitewater boater. I'd done one three-day trip around the Inner Hebrides, uh, and I'd done a three-day trip along an inland lock and a bit of the Arisay coast with my dad. And then my third trip was four months on my own uh, around Scotland, so I was being really conservative. In terms of the, the rest of that time, there was probably about two months of paddling, about a month in the tent, and about another month of that was climbing some of the coastal Monroes uh, that I knew would be harder to access when I got to the winter. Paddling distance-wise, it was about 1,600 kilometers. So when you say a month in the tent, that was simply you being conservative of um, these are conditions I'm not prepared to go out in. Yeah, so it started off, I had a very set limit that I would never go out more than a force five. Um, and so if, if I saw conditions that I wasn't comfortable with, I, I would just stay in the tent and wait it out. Uh, I had allowed myself uh, the gift of time, so I didn't really have anything to race towards. As, as experience grew along the coast, that limit then pushed up to sort of 4.6, 4.7. Um, normally wouldn't choose to go out above a 4.8, but you occasionally did get caught out. So did you have any special techniques to keep yourself to those rules? Massively. I, I basically wake up, look out the tent and, and go on gut feeling. You, you obviously, you do a lot of preparation in the evening. You look at the weather forecasts. I normally use several different forecasting sites. Uh, you'd look at your tides and you'd try and figure out, is it going to be rough? Am I going to be able to manage? And then I'd sort of spot check back in the morning. I would just I would open the tent and have a look and say, do I want to do that today? Uh, and if the answer was yes, I would go for it. And that can take that can often take a lot of discipline. I mean, uh, we often have that uh, that internal voice that says, "Well, it's not so bad. I'm going to go anyway." And so, to be able to have that conviction and say, "No, that's beyond the limit that I'm ready to go to, and I'm going to stick to my uh, to my numbers." Yeah, and I think um, that's certainly hard. I, I always find it very polarizing. If it's really calm, you know you're going to go. If it's really windy, you know you're going to be in the tent. It's that mid zone where you don't really know if it's going to be all right or not that I always found very difficult and it largely just came down to if you looked out and thought mm, yeah maybe um, or maybe I can get 10k up the coast and I know I've got a really sheltered harbour or a, a chip shop or a pub that I can drop into the motivation definitely goes up a little bit. So tell us about some of the people you met along the way it's often the people that make the difference in an expedition. Absolutely yeah my favourite couple I met almost right at the beginning, about a week in, uh, I'd, I'd at this point been out on my own. Um, I, I started the first two days with my dad, who then, then uh, had to go back to work. 
uh, and I'd been out about five days on my own. And I bumped into this couple called Jane and Vic that were doing, they called it an adventure before dementia. It was traveling around Scotland in an old folks uh, sort of motorhome, taking their time and just exploring at their own pace. They invited me in, we had a cup of tea, it was lovely. And then the next day I, I, I jumped a headland, uh, did a big open crossing, about a 25 kilometer open crossing across um, Wigton Bay and landed on the other side and by complete coincidence where I landed they happened to also be camping and so I ended up in their camper van again and again for the third day by complete coincidence I bumped into them uh, at this point I was pretty convinced they were stalking me um, but at the then I didn't see them for a long time and right at the end of the journey the last month they, they actually tracked me down and caught up with me which I thought was great they, they really sort of highlighted the the kindness that you meet from just strangers. There were many other people that I, I met who would invite me into their houses. They, they would offer sort of places to camp. They would occasionally leave food outside the tent door. Completely unasked for, just, just out of the sort of kindness and hospitality of, of the Highlands. So what did you find most unexpected about uh, that portion of the trip? Certainly the most unexpected was what I found on the East Coast. I knew the North Coast would be rugged and rough, and I knew the West Coast would be on the whole relatively sort of beautiful, unexciting paddling. But I'd written off the East Coast. Um, I, I grew up on the West. I had written off the East Coast as being a home leg of open, sandy, flat, fairly tedious paddling. And it couldn't have been any further from what I found. There were just as, just as good cliffs and headlands and caves the locals were just as friendly as I'd found anywhere else in Scotland. People, the wildlife, everything was just absolutely beyond expectation. So what is it that you think that gives the East Coast that bad rap? Um, I think because the West Coast is famously so varied for paddling, and, and there are a lot of sandy beaches on the East Coast, um, I think the temptation, Scotland being fairly short to drive across, is to just hedge your bets and go for somewhere that you know <laughs> is going to be really really good um, and it takes it it takes a sort of dedicated explore exploratory mindset to go and find the stuff in the east but it is it's certainly there what were your biggest challenges on the on the water portion of the trip uh the the biggest three that i would sort of put in into it if, if i had to do it in in order would be getting the kayak in and out of the beach uh as the the top challenge again being on my own Whenever I landed, it was getting the boat a, a couple of hundred meters out of the rocks onto the top of the beach. The, the way that I'd loaded the kayak, because I was on a, a really tight budget, I'd made hundreds of my own freeze-dried meals using a desiccator and vacuum-packed them. And I'd stuffed them loose into the boat to get as many as possible to fit. And so landing, emptying the boat out wasn't really practical a lot of the time. And so every day coming in and out, you would have to basically roll this boat weighing 120 kilos up and down the beach uh, over rocks and all sorts of things, um, which was physically and sort of mentally quite tiring at the start of the day. Yeah, after four um, months of that, you'd think, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty solid workout. Um, that, that was, however, the best cure for the other thing that I really struggled with, which was being cold in the mornings. Uh, I had a two millimeter neoprene t-shirt and a cag was my, my paddling attire of choice 
And the T-shirt, I think, was pretty permanently wet. So putting that on cold and wet in the morning definitely took a bit of dedication. Uh, but then you knew you'd got an hour of dragging the boat, which would warm you up, which was grand. <laughs> um, Coastal-wise, the North Coast was definitely the biggest challenge, however. Um, I got caught out a couple of times there uh, in very big ocean conditions uh, and had a, a real epic on the, the second last headland where uh, the conditions basically went tide against wind unexpectedly. With the tide, went, uh, I was going around the, the head to Holborn Head along to Scrabster, which is uh, the last little big city in the northeast. And uh, I planned it. You have to plan it with the tides in the north coast. The tides are very, very strong, more than you can paddle against. And I set out on the tide and committed to the headland with the knowledge that it was going to be relatively calm winds. Um, but that, in reality, turned out to be a, a false forecast, which then went against me and picked up very strong, about a force seven or eight. Uh, and with that tide over wind, the sea then built into a pretty ferocious, uh, I, re I reckon it to be about four meters or so, sort of steep and breaking waves. And it was a real fight to get the kayak around this very challenging um, conditions into, into Scrabster, uh, by which time the, the boat, which was already beginning to leak, my deck leaking and, and stuff like that was beginning to wear out. Uh, I think there must've been about three or four inches of air left in the cockpit by the time I got in. Uh, and basically survival paddle with the boat full of water into the harbour. And then I spent three days sitting on the beach, eating burgers and refusing to go anywhere near the sea. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's switch to the mountaineering part. So, uh, sure. so how did you make the transition from the water to the mountaineering part? And then give us kind of the outline of the mountaineering piece of it. So the... The last five days of the sea kayaking, my, my dad drove back down and joined me with my cousin. Um, and when we, we got to the end, my cousin had never really done much sea kayaking before, but he had done road touring. He'd, he'd done a couple of bicycle trips. And for me, I, I'd never done anything with a bike with a pannier. And so he sort of taught me. We, we arrived at Berwick-on-Tweed, emptied the kayak out, and then sat down and thought, right, we've got to get all this in a bike now. And he, he taught me how to get everything into the panniers and we had a, almost a shakedown cycle uh, to sort of iron out the kinks of, of how that all worked by cycling back across the inland border uh, back to the west coast where I'd started my trip uh, four months prior. And then after that, uh, my cousin departed and I, I started heading north towards the mountains with the first mountain being Ben Lomond, which is, is just a little bit north of where I went to university. Both segments of the uh, trip were solo? For the most part? For the majority, yeah. There was, there was a couple of people kind of joined in here and there willy-nilly. The, the vast majority of everything was on my own. Uh, and so the mountains were certainly harder than the, the paddling was, um, largely because winter slowly arrived in. Finished my paddling part about September. And, and then the race between September and the end of October was to get as many hills as possible done before the snow arrived. Uh, and so the first month was kind of a, a, not only a race of bagging hills but also a, a game of trying to get the legs back and working which on the whole worked the the only thing that i hadn't accounted for was if you sit in a kayak for four months the the soles of your feet go a little bit soft and the the resulting blisters were fairly impressive so what did you find most unexpected about the mountaineering piece of it other than that uh, the mountains were probably a lot i was a lot more comfortable in the mountains than i was in the the kayaking stage of things because my 
I did a degree in environmental science and outdoor education, which was very heavily weighted towards getting your summer mountain leadership qualifications and have been very mountain heavy. I think what I found most unexpected was as that stacks day upon day upon day, particularly as winter rolled in uh, and it was a particularly snowy and windy winter, was how your mental health of being on your own in essentially a whiteout bubble in the, in the top of the mountains you you couldn't see ground nor sky it was just white uh, with a sort of cold jet engine in your face and what I found was the mental challenge of that counting your paces and doing that day after day just counting paces doing compass bearings not really seeing very much for a long time and not having the social interaction to talk that through with anyone else was probably the more unexpected thing that I found uh, pretty difficult. So you've got 282 mountains that you're doing, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. And that's over about 180 days that you're doing Yeah, those. it was about that, yeah. Okay. So yeah. a mountain and a half every day. How do you go about planning, not only, not only the mountaineering piece, but how do you go about planning the entire trip? So the, the planning-wise, the, the, the paddling was basically a kind of head, head round, keep the coast on your right and you'll get yeah. to the far end. Um, <laughs> for, the, for the mountains... I, got a map with all the Monroes marked on them that you can you can buy commercially pretty much anywhere and I basically joined the dots from the the bottom up with a zigzag route and of course at that stage of my life I had my university dissertation to be doing and so rather than doing that I procrastinated by planning this trip to an inch of its life <laughs> and had um, every every day where I would be and what I would be doing I think I followed that for the first week at best the reality of planning it out on paper and actually doing it um, was very different, particularly with the bike. Um, I assumed that I would be able to mountain bike over big mountain passes, but carrying all your food plus winter mountaineering gear plus camping gear, the bike was about 70 kilos on its own. And, and riding that over mountain passes, particularly in the snow, just didn't, didn't seem feasible. And so the, the route very quickly changed into a which which Monroe is the nearest one you still roughly following that zigzag pattern but logistically trying to pick better circuits so you would park the bike and then go up for several days and do a circuit back to the bike um, camping high and then coming back to almost a base camp okay that's that's part of what I was wondering about was you know you if you link a number of mountains together, you might not end up in the same spot as the bike. Um, you've got to figure out how to route yourself back to the bike and do that in, in an efficient manner to be able to hit all those mountains in that short period of time. Yeah, so I, that, I think that is actually where the time comes in, is making those circuits work. Um, I, I wasn't going for any sort of speed record. In fact, the, the record just got beaten about a couple of weeks ago to 31 days 23 hours I think but to do those sort of speedy ascents you need to have someone moving the bike from A to B so you have linear routes um, making things into a circular it, it enormously increases the distance and the the effort that you have to put in to, to do them all in a, a sort of self-propelled manner yeah, and, and from your description your trip wasn't necessarily about speed as much as it was experiencing your own backyard yeah, so I mean, the, uh, the one thing I did have was time, and the, my only real limitation was funding. I, I'd saved up £1,500 uh, working various odd jobs at the university, and somehow convinced my bank to give me a, an overdraft of £1,500. So I had 
essentially £3,000 to last a year. And when that went out, that was the end of the trip. And so as time went on, the more frugal you needed to be, knowing that that was your kind of set limiter. So you mentioned food and uh, you'd freeze dried hundreds of packets of food. Did you have food uh, resupply drops along the way? So the the majority of the, the food that I made myself, uh, I used on the kayaking section. And the, the first two months I, I packed into the boat. And, and just by really nice coincidence, I live uh, about two months up the coast from the border. And so we, uh, I basically came home uh, and resupplied from the house okay. and then carried on. Uh, we did have the the one that we did have a challenge with, particularly with the mountains, was mapping, and there was a, a logistics game of shuttling it between friends or my father's work colleagues or anyone you could pull in as a contact to get these little parcels of maps that you could then trade over and swap. So you would always have the the maps for the area you were heading into. Um, to carry to carry the paper maps for the the entire country would be a pretty hefty weight. So what were your biggest learnings from the entire experience? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, the biggest learning, I mean, for me, that you can do something big and epic without going very far, um, which was really interesting for me. Um, I learned that if you spend three months in, in whiteout in the tops of hills, you start having sleep paralysis dreams and go a little bit mental. Um, <laughs> Um, but I think what I, I mean, the, the thing I took out of it most was that almost anywhere you go, there were people who are willing to be hospitable, uh, friendly, welcoming. And if you're doing something like that, you seem to find that almost on a daily occurrence that you would you would find somebody who would say a really nice hello or they would invite you back to their house or they would support you in some way. And the, the kindness of people in Scotland was the, probably the biggest thing that I took out of it. Um, and filled me with an awful lot of hope for humanity. That is certainly one of the things that uh, that I, I personally I take away from nearly every one of the episodes that I've recorded so far. And we talk about the people and the people making the difference. Yeah, I think I, I think it's uh, in any sort of remote trip you don't tend to meet very many people, but those you do meet really make or break the trip. Thankfully, the the vast majority make the trip, and, and there's very few who break it. So knowing what you know now. What would you do different? Uh, with the, the food, the biggest thing I would do differently, which is a lesson for anyone who does sea kayak expeditions, is no matter how good you think you've got your container of repair fiberglass resin, the smell will get out. And don't pack your food in the same hatch as that. <laughs> um, my, my food for the first two months, uh, the, the scent seeped out of this resin bottle and all my food tasted of fiberglass. Um, I would certainly consider if I did it again using a dry suit um, which I think would have made a little bit more comfort and in the winter the the biggest thing I would have changed I would have taken a tarpaulin uh, like a tarp for the for the forests uh, and I would have taken a slightly bigger tent than the one I took the the solo small one-man tent I had although it was an incredibly good tent was probably a little bit small for winter and resulted in a lot of condensation issues where I was just contacting the side of the tent, which is impossible to keep wet over time in that sort of thing. And and you would eventually end up with a sort of wet frozen sleeping bag. Um, if, if I'd had a bigger tent, a bit more discipline to take the inner out before collapsing, that would have made probably a very big difference in my trip. Yeah, that, uh, that dry suit would really bring up your, your confidence level over the, the two mil shirt. 
Yeah, certainly would do. Um, and certainly be more comfortable that first couple of hours in the morning. <laughs> um, it's probably not entirely necessary in Scotland in the summer for a dry suit, but I think when you're doing a, a long repetitive trip like that, it would make the trip just that little bit more comfortable. So how did you prepare both music, uh, sorry, both mentally and physically for the trip? Mentally, I think the, that huge over-planning in lieu of not doing my dissertation uh, work that I should have been doing um, probably had me very confident and mentally prepared. Um, I think a large degree of that confidence on the sea was probably blissful naivety uh, in that I was confident with my tidal navigation stuff, which my dad had briefed me on quite hard. But the I didn't really appreciate the challenge or the scale of the challenge. Uh, but was confident that I could escape my role in self-rescue. And so the, for that, the mental preparation of that was basically sort of point into it and take it at a pace that I felt comfortable at. And I think the allowing of time really helped with that mentally. It, knowing that I had the time to take it at my own pace uh, really changed the game on that. Um, Physically-wise, uh, I'm, I'm a really big fan of just kind of cracking on and doing it. And after the first two weeks, you'll be fit. Um, I didn't really do any physical training to, to start off. Um, I just got in the boat and went, and the first two weeks were fairly slow, and then it sped up. So how did you fill the gap in your, your skills, knowledge, and abilities from what you knew and what you were competent and capable with in whitewater and translate that to sea kayaking? The main thing that I really wanted to get nailed before going out on the sea was having a, a vague confidence with tides and knowing how they worked and also uh, a confidence of how to self-rescue my boat. Uh, my Eskimo role was moderately strong at the time. Um, I, I was bomb-proof on my left side, my right-hand side was probably a little bit weak. But I, I absolutely practiced to death how to do a re-entry Eskimo roll. And so if I, if I tired out and came out of my boat, I was incredibly confident that I could get myself back in again um, if need be. Uh, and that, I think, really sort of mentally helps a lot as well. Tidal-wise, I think it would have been, been very interesting to have gone back, having gone through the British Canoe Union qualifications and learnt a little bit more of the, the semantics of that. In, I, I didn't know how to do a tidal transect, for example. I just knew how to calculate how strong the tide and when it was going at what hour, and basically aimed upstream. And so I, I knew that if the tide was going six knots, I needed to aim fairly far upstream. If it was going one knot, I could kind of ed, almost dead reckon it. Um, and by the, by the end of the trip, I got that down to a fairly fine art. Um, being able to do tidal stuff in fog, uh, not quite sure how now, <laughs> um, but kind of sort of spot guessing and guessing what the tide was and just aiming upstream to, to what I figured would be my drift. Knowing how to do that with a compass and things now makes it an awful lot easier. What advice would you give to someone who's planning a, a, either a similar expedition or just a large expedition in general? If, the, if you're planning your own expedition, like I say, the biggest thing you can give yourself is time. Uh, and the ability to assess your own risk. So the time and sort of self-honesty is a really important thing. Learn to figure out where you are weak and admit it. Don't just sort of say, well, I'll be okay. Uh, if you're not very good at, for example, if you're not very good at doing a, an exit through a surf break, then plan your trip so that you can minimize that. And experience generally comes uh, just after you needed it. So when you, you do go into those situations, you'll end up learning a little bit along the way anyway. 
but it's it's having that ability to self-assess your own risk and time that is probably the two best things you can have on an expedition when it comes to the semantics of kind of packing and all that sort of thing there's there's an infinite amount of information online but i would just sit and pack and unpack your your boat or your bag until you're pretty happy you've got a system and everything can fit so what equipment did you use on the trip uh camping wise in the summer i had a light sort of sleeping mat one of those sort of thermost inflatables a fairly light summer sleeping bag uh, and I, I use hilleberg tents which are really bomb proof um and i actually use the same the same solo small tent uh, the, the entirety of that trip camping stove wise i had a little primus thing that took all sorts of fuel so uh, those ones that can burn like car petrol and, and canister gas and anything flammable that you put in it really what I also used, which I found really useful, was a thing called a backcountry boiler. It's a, it's a kettle with a hole in the middle of it that you light a fire in, in the middle of it, and it will boil water in the kettle on the outside. And you don't need much more than pencil-sized sticks, which you can always find on the coast in Scotland. And that was my main way of heating water and, and heating food through the summer months. And so it saved an enormous amount of money on, on fuel being able to just pick up sticks and, and warm my food up. Uh, when the winter came in, that sort of went out the window a little bit. And as winter came in, I swapped that equipment into um, more into uh, sort of heavy winter sleeping bags and, and heavier uh, winter thermoests and things. Uh, kayaking wise, the actual kayak that I had uh, was a hand-me-down from my dad. It was a P&H Sirius, which at the time was about 15 or 16 years old. And we spent the entire winter before it with my, my dad and a lot of my friends. We, we stripped it down completely in the garage. We, we sanded it completely back to the fiberglass, uh, repaired all the holes and cracks on it, and then re-gel coated it through the, through the winter. Admittedly, probably a little bit thick. Uh, I can't remember if we had sort of five or six layers on, but it was probably a little heavy and thick compared to your normal P&H boat. Uh, but with extra keels on and things, we made it really, really bomb-proof. Well, you're dragging it over rocks and... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it, was, it was certainly certainly holed up again towards the end. Um, but the I think as part of that, the confidence it gave me in repairing the boat, if it, if it had a hole in, I mean, you knew how the fiberglass worked and the gel coat worked, and it, it, made, it made you a lot less wary of putting a hole in it if it did happen. Although, obviously, trying to avoid that. Um, and that, that boat's still going, actually. It's uh, uh, hopefully got a, quite a long life out of it. Excellent. So did you have any uh, big equipment mishaps, either a hole in the boat or anything like that? Um, I, I put a couple of holes in the boat. The worst one actually was entirely my own fault. And I, I landed on a, a fairly steep dumping surf into a sort of rocky bay, desperate to go for a morning ablution. Uh, I couldn't find anywhere else to land. And then, <laughs> then coming back out, got surfed on a wave uh, and dumped onto a rock, which put a, a fairly sizable hole in the side of the boat. But uh, enough that you could sort of patch it and, and paddle out to the next beach and then it was a day of fiberglassing. The funnier one that I had, which affected me probably more in the Monroes than it did with the, the kayaking, although happened because of the kayaking, was the, the tent poles I had were aluminium and repeatedly soaking them in salt water every day. Um, I, no matter how much I tried, I mean, we must have made a mistake when we were re-gel coating the kayak, but, I, but there was a leak somewhere in my back hatch that I could never quite find the, the source of. But it, it, you'd always end up with about two inches of salt water that inevitably was where the tent poles sat. 
and they, they slowly anodized and seized together. And so by the end of the kayaking, the, the shortest I could get the, the tent poles was about half their length. And you basically had them as sort of half split poles on the back of the boat. Um, but when it came to the cycling in the mountains, I had this aerial at the back of the bike, which was my tent poles for quite a long time uh, until Hilleberg thankfully actually sent me a new set, which was very nice of them. Um, but that, that was probably quite comical. So you went from the uh, the Peonage Sirius. Um, what favorite boat today? Uh, my favorite boat today, I've actually only just taken delivery of a couple of months ago, which is a PH Aries in carbon Kevlar um, that I am absolutely loving <laughs> in the sea. Yeah. It's the, it's the first ever sea kayak I've ever managed to do a flat spin on a surf wave, which was quite fun with. <laughs> um, but the, uh, yeah, I'm kind of toying between that and, and the, the P&H. I'm really liking the P&H Virgo at the moment uh, for, for doing rock hopping and things, being a plastic boat. It's, I'm a little less twitchy at slamming it into things. Yeah. Um, I'm actually really enjoying that. I've got, I've got the low volume and the mid volume. And the, the low volume is really quite playful and fun in a surf. Sounds nice. So what's next for Will Copstig? Um, next is hopefully to go and complete the trip I was planning on doing this year um, that was delayed. Um, we, we planned and organized the, the final leg of our three, pro, three expedition uh, journey through Patagonia, uh, which is from Puerto, uh, Punta Arenas, uh, heading south through the Beagle Channel and eventually around Cape Horn. Uh, finishing in Puerto Williams, about a 900-kilometer paddle slash portage expedition to head head down to the southern southern tip of South America. And you've um, done two of those legs. We've done two of those legs. Yeah, we've worked our way from a town called Puerto Aden, which is about 840 kilometers north of where I, I live in in Patagonia when I'm working down there. From there, the friend of mine, Seamus Nairn, who comes and joins me every year, and we we journeyed from there down to Puerto Natales uh, over about a month on our first trip. Amazing bit of coastline because you, you head off and you don't see anyone for a month. There's no access roads or people or anything out there. Uh, and then the, the next stage we went from Puerto Natales to Punta Arenas, uh, which is a slightly shorter trip of about two weeks, about 480 kilometers, I think. Um, and then the last, the last leg is this kind of big leg all the way down around the Cape. Um, so uh, thankfully, with the timing of all the lockdowns and things this year, we, we were due to head out on that about a fortnight after all, everything locked down. And so if, if it had been a fortnight later, we'd have been on our way to Cape Horn with no clue at all that the world was closing down behind us. Uh, and probably would still be in Chile, actually. Yeah. Might not have got back. So tell us about your work in Patagonia. Yeah, so in, in Patagonia, I work with a company called Kayak in Patagonia. They, they do trips, their, their day trips are their kind of bread and butter where we, we take people out on the, the Serrano and the Grey River in Torres del Paine National Park. Uh, and you're, it's a really weird and strange guiding scene there. You're, you're guiding people in sea kayaks, mostly in tandem sea kayaks, uh, on a river and in 30 to 40 knot winds plus. Uh, and, and these people have never paddled before, most of them. And so you're, you're kind of teaching survival gale paddling, but also river skills um, with the aim of trying to see icebergs. And it's a really fun, dynamic uh, guiding environment. Surprisingly safe. I mean, the, the conditions make it sound horrible, but actually it's a really <laughs> wonderful, safe, safe place to work because uh, it's a very closed environment. 
kayak in Patagonia is other other sort of leaf that they do are expedition trips, which will be two, three, four, uh, and now they've just opened up a five day trip down there, uh, where they take you further down the river, and the longer the trip is, the more wild and remote the options are. Anything over three days will involve lining the kayaks up a river to find a, a glacial glacial lake that is really difficult to get to any other way. Uh, and for me, that's something that I've I've kind of fallen in love with down there. There's something really magical about dragging a boat somewhere it shouldn't be and then paddling it about a lake. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be heading back down there again soon? Do you think? Uh, I hope to in a few. I hope to in a few years. Yeah, uh, I I don't think they're going to have much of a season this year. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a little worried about uh, the tourism industry in Chile this year. The majority of their clientele are, are from America, and I don't know when any of that's going to open up. I'm I'm looking at the moment for sort of twenty 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 two to be to be heading down there again. So what's what happens for you in uh, in Scotland then in that time? Um, so the the winter normally for me if I'm if I'm in Scotland it becomes a a mix of doing odd jobs here and there and going on longer personal adventures. Um, this year I'm, I'm hoping with my partner we're going to cycle for two weeks up the Outer Hebrides uh, and almost do a mini version of that Macket and Monroe Scotland trip. Uh, but break it up. So we'll, we'll cycle through the, the islands and climb the, the higher hills there, which are a little bit smaller than Monroe's. And then I'd like to come back in February or March and do a, a kayaking expedition and circumnavigate those. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of see how the weather and, and things work out with lockdowns and things. Well, best of luck to you on that. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully yeah. it'll be a lot of fun. So, Will, how can listeners reach you? The, the best way to reach sort of me for my adventures is willcopestakemedia.com um, or if you fancy joining me for an adventure, kayaksummerisles.com, which is my company that I run uh, sea kayaking. Um, we do Canadian canoeing trips in the, in the northwest of Scotland. Excellent. Well, Will, I really appreciate you joining me today. This has been, uh, been a lot of fun learning about your, your trip around Scotland, the multi-mode trip. Um, one question that I always like to ask at the end of an interview uh, is, well, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? So I'd really like to see uh, lots more couples uh, coming into the, the, sort of the chat. Um, I would really like to plug James and Fee Corfee, uh, if they're willing to do one, uh, who have done some really epic kayaking trips together as a couple, um, circumnavigating South and North Island New Zealand, um, doing an enormous trip this year in Patagonia, which I was very jealous of where they went from Puerto Montt all the way down to Cape Horn uh, in 80-something days, I think, um, which was a very, very impressive trip for them to achieve. And I'd also like to plug Erin Bastian, if you've not had her already, because she's also a very impressive paddler who does expedition trips all around the world. All right. Both I will... of whom I'm sure have many good stories. Excellent. I will certainly reach out to both and uh, see if we can get Fee and James Corfee and Erin uh, Bastian uh, to join us. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you, uh, you giving the time here today. And uh, we'll look forward to getting this out to our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been a real pleasure. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, 
Use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient. Have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. What an epic trip. Another reminder that adventure can be found right in our own backyard. Of course, it helps that the end of your backyard is the ocean, but, but still, don't forget to look around you and appreciate what you have and how you can create adventure from it. So thanks for joining us, Will. In the next episode, we're going to feature the crew from For the Water. These guys, two still finishing college and two just having finished, came together for a 102-day trip of a lifetime circumnavigating Lake Superior. They learned about the lake, gained a healthy respect for her waters, and learned what they can do together. So thanks as always for listening. I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.